The following podcast is provided by truthforsaints.com, a resource for cults, religions, and church history. I took the parable of the, uh, of the unforgiving servant, and, um, and that it's, it's all about forgiveness. And what's funny, this is a true story. This happened to me this, the, the beginning of this week. I was uh, at work, and I was walking down the hallway, and this guy comes walking up to me. I've never seen him before. He comes walking up to me in the hall. And he's like bouncing all like, he's walking all goofy and bouncy and stuff. And I thought to myself, I thought, is that guy making fun of me? Oh. <laughs> and I'm like, and I, I was like, and, and then I saw it kind of pause as I'm walking. And I looked over my shoulder a little bit. Mm-hmm. And as he walked away in the distance, he's still walking all goofy and bouncy. And I'm like, oh, cool. He wasn't making fun of me. He just happens to walk exactly like me. <laughs> and he did. That's a true story. He really walked all bouncy and goofy like I do. But that's, that's cool. But you see, that's the idea of forgiveness. It's giving the benefit of the doubt. Right, right. Yeah. I forgive him. I forgive him. So, so we're going to read from a parable, um, Matthew. Uh, we're in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Uh, just a couple quick words about this parable. First of all, Matthew is one of the synoptic Gospels. That's just a fancy name for the Gospels that, that tend to run, uh, that correspond with one another. Probably one of the earliest in circulation, Matthew. Some, some conservative scholars put it at about 48 A.D. when it started circulating. Matthew was a tax collector, an accountant, so of course we're going to be talking about money in this parable of his. But uh, he, uh, he was an eyewitness, and his purpose for writing... Uh, in his whole gospel is to portray Jesus as Messiah King, and he was he was um, presenting his gospel to a Jewish audience. Now, so so the parable that we're going to we're going to deal with tonight is uh, it deals with uh, the picture of a king and and a servant. Now, in the text, I have slave because that is the term that's actually the word that's closest to the Greek is slave, and there is a difference between servant and slave. A servant might have been. Uh, might have been compensated for the work that they do. A slave was not compensated. A servant might have had a voice in the courts. A slave had no voice in the courts. A a slave was helpless uh, in in any situation uh, in these days. So that is probably a better picture of, of, of what Jesus is trying to convey versus the king and his slaves at this time. So, uh, but the, but it has the the the, the um, modern translations have changed that to servant, and of course that's so and that's now famous for being the parable of the unforgiving servant. So I'm going to jump into it, and then afterwards I'm going to I'm going to assign a little bit of homework or some room work, whichever you want to call it. You could, you can do it here in the room. So the, the section of what, of the text that I'm going to read will have a setup, then it will have the narrative, which is the parable itself, and then it will have what I call the heavy verse. It's the application verse. The setup and the application verse are not narrative and are not allegorical. They're, they are to be taken literal and they are to be taken as, as application, uh, as applicational. Uh, so keep that in mind as we're going into this. So it says in verse 21, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have any means to, to repay, his 
Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him. Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave <clears throat> fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him into prison until he sh should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should, not, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Wow. It's a heavy verse, but we're yeah. going to talk a little bit about it. Here's the deal. With regards to a parable, uh, a hermeneutic, um, everybody knows what hermeneutics is. This is it's the art of interpretation. Anything for any, it's getting at what the author intended to say, what what he was what he was writing, who he was writing to, and why he was writing. It gets to what he meant and what was intended by the passage. That's hermeneutics. It's one of the most valuable classes you can ever take. So, a hermeneutic about parables is this: a parable is meant as a narrative that delivers a common theme or a teaching. So it, it's one central theme or one central teaching. It is not meant to be taken bit by bit, piece by piece, and we apply it to other doctrines. Now I put some fancy words up there like soteriology and Christology. Uh, soteriology meaning you can't take a parable and have it uh, that's talking about forgiveness and have it teach you how, how to get saved. Right. Because that's not what Jesus was trying to teach with this passage. Right. That needs to be kept in mind when you get to that heavy verse 35. Because if you take it the wrong way, it sounds like you can lose your salvation if you don't forgive, doesn't it? That is not what this is teaching. This is teaching forgiveness based on the model of God's forgiveness for us. But we're going to take a look at what that verse does mean. Because it is heavy and it is literal and it is not allegorical. It's not a narrative and it's not a story. So keep that in mind as we're going through here. Here's, here's your homework. You ready? As I talk about the, this, this parable of forgiveness, I believe, I sincerely believe this, and I've been praying for this, that the Holy Spirit will, in your heart and in my heart, He'll bring a person to mind. He'll bring an incident to mind. And it might be deep. It may be someone from a long time ago. It may be somebody sitting right next to you. But I want you to write that down. I want you, if you don't have a pen, borrow one. If you don't have a piece of paper, tear one off. Remember what Jesus said, you know, when your neighbor asks for his cloak, give him your tunic as well. Well, just give him a you know, half of your piece of paper. You know what I mean? That's, that's easy. Yeah. Get a piece of paper, get a pen, write it down. Here's why. Unforgiveness is sin, correct? Yeah. Yes. Right. Now, what are the two major ways that sin deceives? First of all, is sin, is sin called the honest guy sin? Does the Bible say... Sin is honest. It'll let you know it's there, right? <laughs> doesn't say that, doesn't. I, I, was, I once had a, a guy tell me, you don't need to tell people about their sin. People already know about their sin. No. 
if that were the case, then sin's honest and lets you know it's there. The number one deceit that sin that, that sin pulls off in our lives, number one, is that it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Now, here's the second great deceit. Because the Lord is good, he gives the Holy Spirit to us and to the lost to what? Convict the world of sin. Right. So we have that. The other thing that we have that helps us uncover that the damaging sin in our life is we have God's word, right? right. That reveals it to us. He goes after it. So then what do you think the second great deception of sin is? To make you forget once you've found it. Oh, yeah. That's the second thing. And so how do you prevent that from happening? You write it down. You've defeated it. You see, it can't beat. It can't beat you, but you've got to go after it. So that's what I want you to do. All right, let's jump into this. So verse 20, 23, oh, let, me, let me first back up and say this. There are three three key takeaways from the, the, the narrative part of this, which will spend the book, or three, not just the narrative part, the three key takeaways from the whole parable. The first thing I, that I want us to really look at is the 10,000 talents. The second thing I want us to look at is the 100 denarii. And the third thing, the implications of following a, a wrong model, okay? Those are the three big takeaways, and I'll try to get to them as quickly as possible. Uh, so let's start with the 10,000 talents. What are they? So verse, verse 23 through 25, it says, When he had begun to settle his debts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. So what, what are 10,000 talents? Well, let, let's talk a little bit about them. A talent weighs about 33 kilograms, Right? And if we, and it's usually in that in that part of the world, it would have been by the silver standard. Uh, and at our current rate of seven point six or seven dollars sixty cents an ounce, roughly, it's about sixty. We're, we're talking about ten thousand talents is about sixty-five million dollars. But that doesn't quite mean much, does it? I mean, to us, does it? Sixty-five million dollars. It, it 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 could be a lot. But here's what I think will help drive the point home. Keith Hopkins wrote a book called Conquerors and Slaves in 1978, the historian. And he estimated the that in 100 AD, which would be close to the time of Jesus, the Roman Empire, who had uh, possession of all of Europe up to Great Britain, all the way out west to uh, Spain, south along the northern part of Africa, and then um, east in the area of Iraq, Iran, I think it was where that, that, that eastern border, yeah, on the eastern side. So all of these nations, all of these nations had to pay Rome tribute every year. They had to pay a tax every year. Eighty, about 84,000 talents, roughly, per year is what Rome made. That means about 7,000 a month the whole world paid to Rome. 7,000 talents a month. This guy owed 10,000 talents. One guy, 10,000 talents. So my point in saying that is this. Jesus was using a figure of speech, an astronomical number, an unfathomable number of insurmountable debt. He wasn't saying literally 10,000. He wasn't trying to convey 10,000. This would have been a number like you and I saying a trillion dollars today. It's just nobody owes that because nobody owns that. Right. That's the point, and it's key. It's key that we get that, especially when it comes to the interpretation of this. So um, it's an insurmountable debt. Now let's talk a little bit about what that, how that can be interpreted as far as our sin. To recognize that we have a debt that we cannot pay, um, 
we would have to interpret that and look at that as our sin against God. Would that be a stretch or would that be fairly accurate for us to say that's our sin against God? So <clears throat> I'm going to look a little bit later about three models of sin. Some, some people kind of blow off God's forgiveness or they think they're pretty good people so they don't really owe much. <clears throat> Uh, and so, uh, or that they were bad people, but now they're doing all these good things. Now they're in church all the time, and therefore they probably don't have that much forgiveness they need because they're kind of working it off, right? That's the 1,000 talent model. We'll talk about that in a bit. Then there's those that believe that God's forgiveness is huge. He forgave all our sins up to today. And then now, His forgiveness keeps up with our behavior and our performance. And so far as we perform and behave properly, God forgives. Right. But what happens if we go sideways? Right. We do go sideways. What happens? Right. Well, his forgiveness ceases at that point. And then we, we find ourselves having to work our way back to him and get back on, on pace with God. That's what I would call the 9,000 talent model. God's insurmountable debt does not include all the sins up to today. Because that means that... He, I don't owe him for the sins I'm going to commit in the future? Is that what everybody's saying? Right. Well, if you live your life like you have to live in step with his forgiveness, then you're saying that you don't owe him for the sins of the future. Right. And that's a, that's a lie. Right. That's a lie. You owe him for those sins in the future. Right. Well, what does this mean then? This means that if he paid for all of our sins, he paid for those in the future because that's part of the debt. Right. All right? So this is the deal with... with, with uh, with the uh, 10,000 talents, we getting a, a handle on what that is. Now, when I first got saved, the first year, year and a half, <clears throat> I was a 1,000 talent guy. I was a crazy kind of punk rocker. I loved going to punk rock gigs and getting in mosh pits and crazy stuff like that. And so when I supposedly got saved and invited Jesus into my heart, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, I invited him into my heart as if I invite him, right, and right. not the other way around. Anyways, right, right. Um, I was a 1,000 model guy, because I wasn't getting drunk anymore. I wasn't going with the crowd anymore. I wasn't um, going to these gigs anymore. I was going to church. And I'll tell you what my week looked like. <clears throat> Sunday, I, I watched four- and five-year-olds at the 11. I went to the 7 o'clock service that Sunday night. Tuesday, I went to singles group at 7 o'clock. Wednesday, I ushered uh, at the side door when we were over on, on Rainbow. Thursday, I went out for two hours and shared uh, in the neighborhoods. I shared the gospel with people door to door. Fridays, I led my own Bible study. Uh, and then uh, on either Saturday or whenever I had a spare time, I would come and help clean the church. Yeah, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, well, it should be. It should be, because I, I, sh I should have thought so. <laughs> I, I really did. I really did. I was a 1,000, I was a 1,000 talent guy. <clears throat> then I did, I did this thing. I said, I wanted to know the Lord, and I set my heart. Mm -hmm. I kept hearing that he said, seek my face, seek me, seek me, seek my face. And so I set my heart to seek him, and I fasted. And of course, my fasts were greater than everybody's fasts. <laughs> my fasts weren't these wimpy little two-day, three-day fasts. I fast for weeks. Well, I fast for either one or two weeks. One week was a short fast. Yes, you should be impressed. <laughs> you should be impressed. <laughs> it's very impressive. But here's the deal. I fasted, and in the middle of it, I woke up. This is 93. I woke up, sat straight up in bed, and a cold sweat came over me, and I said, 
I'm not saved. I'm not. I'm a satanic wretch. That's what I said. I believed it. I was a satanic wretch. And the weight of the world landed on my shoulders. And, and I began for the next couple, probably the next couple weeks, <clears throat> my days were nightmares because I was aware that I had prayed the sinner's prayer a hundred times and God had rejected it. And I wandered around with this horrible, horrible reality that I was on my way to hell and there was absolutely no one or nothing that could save me. For weeks I did this. I had well-meaning friends say, oh, come on, you're a good guy. You're a nice guy. That wouldn't happen. Look at all the stuff you're doing. And I thought I was insane. I was sure that I was insane. And then we were going through this book in the men's group. We were going through this book by A.W. Tozer called Knowledge of the Holy. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't, I, I'm going to have to paraphrase because I don't have it memorized and I couldn't find it. <clears throat> but he says something about, something along the lines of, at one point in that person, kind of, I think he was talking about a false convert, and at one point in his life, all the sins that he is responsible for come home to rest on his shoulders all at once, and the weight of it can destroy him, and, and uh, the weight of it is more than he can bear. And he said one line after that, but it's okay. The gospel can save him. Amen. And I thought, but I have already received the gospel. I've already received the gospel. I've already said the sinner's prayer. I've already invited the Lord into me, into my heart. Well, what do you think, though, that, I mean, a dark night of the soul is what they call that. And, yeah. and people have that. And, and I'm not trying to stand up here and pretend to be super experiential or any of that kind of nonsense. Here's the thing. Here's why I think I had to go through that. And nobody at the time, my friends, had to go through that. And they all you know, were well-meaning and well-intentioned, but really what the one thing that the one statement was said at a family gathering by, by my sister-in-law, and I, was, I said it in passing to my sister-in-law, who was the only other Christian in the family at the time, and she said to me, I, I said, oh, I just feel like I'm the most evil person in the world and there's no hope for me, and I just feel like I, I, am, I am the most sinful man there has ever been and will ever be. And she said, are we all kind of like that, though? And really, of all the statements said, that was the most truthful. Yeah. It was the most truthful. Aren't we all? Don't we all have that? We see, that's what it was. What was the Lord revealing to me in that dark night of the soul, that dark week or two of the soul? What was he revealing to me? The 10,000 talents that I owed. Yeah. It was 10,000 talents. That's what I owed. Wow. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, here's another guy that had a great, a great portrayal of the 10,000 talents. I think it's really important that we get this 10,000 talents because I did all that stuff. I said the sinner's prayer a hundred times. I sat in church a hundred times, but I was still a 1,000 talent guy. I didn't get that I had been released from a massive, massive debt. And my life showed it. Really, it showed it in the way I, 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 I behaved towards people and towards the Lord. So here's the thing. Here's a guy. Guy would have sat down to prepare his sermon for Sunday. He sat down, he I'm sure looked into he prayed over it, looked into scriptures, <clears throat> put it together, wouldn't have had wouldn't have had BibleStudyTools.com back then, but he sat down, prepared his sermon, had no idea what the sermon was going to He just basically went, was presenting a sermon. He stood up, shared this sermon, and people began to weep. He began to weep. People began to repent. People began to change. A fire broke out in that church. And people turned their lives over to the Lord and repented and became legit 
and it spread from there to other churches in the area. Then it spread to other towns in the area. Then from that colony to other colonies, and it spread all the way up and down the colonies at the time in 1741. The man's name was Jonathan Edwards, and the sermon is is it the uh, is it uh, centers in the in the peaceful grace of God? No, in the hands of an angry God. Now, what did the Bible... We don't like to talk about God and God's anger, do we? Especially if, if, you know, we don't. As, as Christians, we don't like to talk about his anger, necessarily. But, you know, if there are unbelievers in, uh, in our midst, they need to hear it. Yes. Right? Because you and I, before we got saved, were what? Objects of? Wrath. Absolutely. And if we insist on remaining 1,000 talent Christians, what do we, what do we uh, have to expect? Fiery indignation and wrath, right? It's real. It exists. But not for those of us who have been saved. Not for those of us who have been delivered. So I'm going to quote a little bit from his sermon. Basically, it's a long sermon, so this is taken kind of out of the middle of it. But basically, he was speaking to people that were in church that assumed because they were alive and well, things were going good, and they were in church and everything else, that God must be pleased with them, and they're doing pretty good. Mm-hmm. But he was about to rock their world with this, and it, it wound up being the, the, the great awakening. Uh, so he, he starts here, So it is not because God is unmindful of their wickedness and does not resent it that he does not let loose his hand and cut them off. God is not altogether such a one as themselves, though they may imagine him to be so. The wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them. And the pit hath opened its mouth under them. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. What he said with this sermon is, look, you're you're dangling over a horrible precipice. And the only reason why you haven't been dropped right now is because God is good. Mm-hmm. And he's got and he's full of grace and mercy. And he wants that you come to the truth of the awful, horrific payment that his son paid on the cross. That's what he wants. So what if what that that pit, that pit, that abysmal pit, what is Jonathan Edwards painting? What is he talking about there? The ten thousand talents. It's the, ten, it's the insurmountable debt. It's the amount that we, none of us can, can, uh, can pay back. So here we are dangled over this gaping hole of hell. And here we are in the hands, sinners, rebellious, in the hands of an angry God. Now, who should be inviting who somewhere? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, we invite him into our heart, but it's his invitation that we respond to. Find him, invite him into our heart. That's great. We do that. But it's his invitation, right. not, not, not him to us. And so, we, we, as a good Catholic, I said the sinner's prayer, but it was almost like a mantra for me. It was almost like a work. But when that moment came in that dark night of the soul for me, where I had to get on my knees and say, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I, I've been a liar. I've thought all this time I knew everything. And I didn't know anything. And I, I was behaving and doing all these things to either pay you back or to earn credit with you or whatever to impress people. But that moment came where I said, have mercy on me. And so here, what do you think happens to a sinner in the hand of, a, of an angry God that cries out for mercy? What does the Bible say happens? In the name of Jesus, it says, 
They're brought and they're made sons and daughters of Almighty God. No way are they going to be near that. All 10,000 talents paid. Not 9,000 talents, and if you forgive your brother, yes, you're here, but if you don't, I'm you're back over the flames again. It doesn't quite work like that. It can't work like that. We have to rewrite Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and John 3, 16, and John 5, 24. Romans 6.23. We have to rewrite all of the uh, the evangelistic verses to, to add in that we must also forgive our brother, right? right? But that's not what that's about. It's not what he's saying. We'll get to that in a minute. So the second thing, the second point. So everybody's got what the 10,000 talents is. How many people in here either had or have the 10,000 10, talent debt? I would hope that everybody would raise their hand. At some point or another, I would hope. The idea is that we recognize it because... It, we'll get to it in a minute. So, 100, 100 denarii. So here we go in verses 28 through 30. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a 100 denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me. I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him into prison so he should pay back everything that he owed. So, our methods tend to follow our model. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. We we some somehow, somewhere, either consciously or subconsciously, we see how somebody does a thing and we like it and we tend to do our thing the way that they do it. And that could be peers, that could be parents, that could be leaders, civic leaders, it could be spiritual leaders. But our methods follow our model. So it's it's things like that that a model that our that the model that we follow tends to um, determine how our methods, our methodology is. Now let me ask you this question. Who was the servant's model? In this parable, who was the servant's model? Who? Yeah, trick question. I got you all. Well, not all of you, but whoever, those of you who are still awake. Um, it's a trick question. Uh, if his model was the, was the king, he would have forgiven it. Yes. But he did not. His model was something else. He was following a wrong model. Maybe peers, maybe family, maybe friend, whoever, but he was following the wrong one, and, and, and here we are. Uh, and <clears throat> he's going to end up paying for that. So let's, let's look at what the 100 denarii is, just so that you know, because I don't want you to miss it. There's a little nuance in here that I don't want you to miss, because it looks like Jesus is naming a minuscule amount of money, isn't he? Yeah. But he, he really isn't. He isn't, and this is this this has a big this plays a big part in this. We have to get this this hundred denarii. One denarius coins, a silver Roman coin, was one day's wages for people that worked in the field and a Roman soldier. One day's wages was one denar denarius. A hundred denarii is one hundred days' wages. To give you an idea today, a police officer at Metro roughly makes about two hundred and fifty dollars a day when they're going into the into the uh, into the department, roughly $250 a day. At um, 100 days wages, that's about a $25,000 debt to you and me. That's not a small debt, is it? That's not a small debt. It's a big debt. It's a big debt to us. But you know, it's it's one sixty thousand of what he was forgiven. But it's still big to us, isn't it? Here's the idea. You remember when, G when, when Peter said, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Now, they, they weren't talking in terms of literal numbers. In that culture, seven was basically the same or the equivalent of what we would say a bunch. 
it was generally a placeholder for a number, for a large number of things. So Peter was actually saying a bunch of times, you know, it was actually a pretty good, a pretty good thing to offer. And Jesus said, 70 times seven times. He was saying a bunch of bunches, a lot. <laughs> so he's and so what we're talking about with the 100 denarii is that that's Peter's seven times. He's putting that into figurative terms. That's that. That's a lot. So I don't want us to miss that, because here's the thing. When it comes time for us to forgive, we might think we forgive the little things, but if it's a really big thing, mm-hmm. we might do some silly things like take them to court. Right. We might call the cops on them because they've taken this or done this, they've sinned against us, they've stolen from us, they've hurt us. And I'm talking about things that are deep emotional hurts. I hope that nobody here is thinking of people that owe them money. Because that's not really what I was getting at. <laughs> what I want you to be thinking about are people that have hurt you. Yeah. People that have legitimately hurt or harmed you. Mm-hmm. And perhaps it's there. And perhaps you have an opportunity to forgive. That's what I want you. Because that's your hundred denarii. Right. And so what I'm asking you to, to think about, when, if the Holy Spirit gives you a person or an incident, he's calling to mind your hundred denarii and I want you to get it. What is that hundred denarii? It's, it's $25,000. It's a pretty big one. Maybe it's smaller. Maybe it's a, but you you know what it is. But the point is that Jesus is making with the hundred denarii, even as big as it is to you guys, he's saying to his his, uh, disciples, even as big as that is, it's nothing compared to the 10,000 talents. This trillion dollar thing that Jesus just named off. That's the point. So here's the deal with models. He followed the wrong model. I tricked some of you and made you think that he was following. He was. He was following the wrong model. In verse 35, he closes with the implications of the following. Now, we're no longer in the parable. It's not allegory. This is not narrative. This is applicational. Verse 35. Let's just read from verse 32. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, Wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And look at this in verse 34. And his Lord moved with anger. Remember back in... um, Verse 25, he actually was moved with compassion. Now he's moved with anger. Uh, handed him over to the torturers till he should repay all that was owed him. Now, now, how much was owed him? 10,000 talents, right? Till all was repaid. So then what is the Lord saying? The same will be done to you. We'll be thrown in till you repay what? 10,000 talents. Is the Lord saying he's going to take away our salvation? Yes or no? No. No, he isn't. Does the Lord retract his forgiveness, yes or no? No, No, he most certainly doesn't. But then what is he saying? The way that I look at this and the way that I could justify this with the rest of Scripture, uh, and I was a little concerned because I didn't didn't want it to be heretical, but the way that I could justify with the rest of Scripture is uh, similar to a James approach. When James said, show me your faith, I'll show you my works. Do you not know that a faith without works is dead? James was not teaching salvation by works. He was simply defining for us what real living faith is, right? Real living faith will produce works. What I see this as, now this is where I'm going to, this is where I'm, I'm treading on thin ice. What I see this as is Jesus saying, look, if you, if you persist in unforgiveness, chances are you never came to grips with the fact that you were forgiven 10,000 talents. Where does that put you? That means that you're not forgiven of Almighty God because you have insisted on on holding your neighbors accountable. And so that's why I put on there, it's a very dangerous thing. 2 Corinthians 13.5, test yourselves to see if you're even in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ 
is in you, right? Saved, unless indeed you fail the test. I see that scripture and I say, that's a picture of someone who does not have any, any, they're over here in the 1,000 talent thing. They have no idea how much has been forgiven them. And they're running around refusing to forgive other people as a result of, of missing what God has done. And so I don't want us to do that. That's the point. That's the whole point of that. Is that we don't, <clears throat> is that we don't miss uh, what, what he has done. But it's not so that we get saved. It's not so that we earn salvation. But if we have salvation, if we have been forgiven, if we have been redeemed, if we have been made a son or daughter of the living God, it will result in forgiveness of other people, even right. up to 100 denarii, even up to $25,000, whatever, even up to the big sins that hurt a lot, okay? So I see this as a warning that God's forgiveness must be a reality, which, which, we, need to, uh, which we need to live out. Uh, and then what I, what I say here is that it's a sobering message. It's a sobering message to unbelievers acting like believers. That part's mine. Message to believers acting like believers without ever being born again. And it can happen. Because I think that's what I was doing for a long time. Right. I think I was running around acting like I was saved. But it wasn't, in, or maybe I was saved by grace, but my faith was so weak I had no concept right. of how good my God was, how good God of all creation, God of all creation is, or was. All right, so... Um, it will result in real behavior. So here we go. I went to Matthew Henry's commentary just to see what he had to say. And wouldn't you know it, he basically said the same thing that I said, only he said it far more eloquently than I could have ever said it. He said a very similar thing, but much better than I said it. I'll read from his, from Matthew Henry's commentary on this, on this passage. He said, This is not intended to teach us that God reverses his pardons to any, but that he denies them to those who are unqualified for them. Though having seemed to be humbled like Ahab, they thought themselves and others thought them in a pardoned state. That was me. <coughs> and they made bold with the comfort of it. Those that do, that do not forgive their brother's trespass, trespasses did never truly repent of their own nor ever truly believe the gospel. That's pretty sobering. That's pretty heavy. But Matthew Henry agrees with me, so I'm not a heretic. <laughs> That's the way I was looking at it. We can expect, if we persist in unforgiveness, we can expect discipline to happen to our backside, to get us out of this funk. Yes. Yes. Right? How many of us yes. have been in a funk yes. every now and again? Yes. We get there. Absolutely. So sometimes we need a little pat on the bottom. Get out, you're acting like people that have never been saved. You're acting like people that have no, conscious, uh, no consciousness whatsoever of the fact that they've been forgiven so much. I think there's built-in suffering and penalty for the believer, because I think what happens is it was, if we persist in unforgiveness, if we have unforgiveness and we refuse to refit, we refuse to forgive, we uh, we wind up with um, we wind up sort of trapped in the flesh yes. until we let that yes. thing go. Yes. We can think we're walking in the spirit, but we're trapped in the flesh until we let that thing go. That's why I say write it down, get rid of it, and wash wash it. But here's the deal. How to know if you're a thousand talent model, a nine thousand talent model, or a ten thousand talent model? The one thousand talent model will tend to be flippant about forgiveness. They don't see any need for it in their own life, and they probably don't see any need for it with anybody else. Very flippant about forgiveness. <clears throat> they uh, they feel that they're kind of that the one thousand talent people think that they're kind of building up credit with God. And so, guess what happens when God doesn't come through in a prayer? What do you think happens? They get, oh, very good. Yeah. They get disappointed, mad, yeah. and upset with the Lord. 
because he didn't come through for them because he owed them. Right. How much does he owe us? Not a thing. He doesn't owe us anything. But yet we are forgiven, saved, sons and daughters of Almighty God through the through grace. We are saved. We, he doesn't know us a thing. But we can think that if we're in that model. The nine thousand talent model I've already talked about. That's that produces the nine thousand talent model produces two types of Christians: legalists who say, "Why can't you keep up? I'm doing. I'm, I'm very moral, and I'm very, and I behave myself, and I obey the word. Why aren't you doing what I'm doing?" That's a legalist. Yes. <clears throat> if any of you have sat under legalistic teaching, you you know you know what how heavy that is, what a burden that is. The other group is the despairing Christian, the despairing Christian that feels that. The more they try to keep pace with God's forgiveness, the more they keep going sideways. And, 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 and they can't seem to keep up. And everybody else seems to be doing fine, but they can't do it. And they get despairing. Now, when, I, when the Lord reached in and grabbed me out of the 1,000, I would have loved to say I went to the 10,000, but I wound up in the 9,000. Very legalistic for a while, and then, uh, then very despairing. Because I tried, and the reality of the fact that I couldn't keep up with his forgiveness and with what I should be doing. It, it became a reality. These people can be angry at the Lord too and feel the legalists can feel like they owe the, the like they um, God owes them. Right? Because they're they're taking care of the rest of their part. Uh, and then the despairing Christ, Christian can say, Well, why are you so mean to me all the time? Right? <clears throat> but the ten thousand talent model, people that get it. They have experienced immeasurable forgiveness. They got it past, present, and future. They don't think that God's only forgiven them up to a state and the rest is theirs. They know that from the time that they were born in the cradle to the time that they're in the coffin, that's their 10,000 10, talent debt. And they know it's not one they can pay. They know they owe it all. And they know that Jesus paid for it all because it was all in the future when he went to the cross on Calvary 2,000 years ago. Right? Yes. All paid. But what does this result in? In this model... <clears throat> deep and profound gratefulness. Yeah. And uh, the people that I know, that that I know are grateful toward the Lord and that have <clears throat> a just a heart of thankfulness towards Him and a very forgiving spirit about them, I know in my heart, I'm like, that person came to grips with the fact that they were forgiven a lot. Yeah. And that's what it does. It does, it does that. It's called maturity. We, we get it. As we mature, we get it. We, we get rid of these other weird models. We learn to forgive the way God forgives. We've, and we forgive and we forget. <clears throat> Ephesians 4.32, <clears throat> be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as what? God in Christ has forgiven you. Well, you know, God says, there's sins I will remember no more. And it says in Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13, that love keeps no record of wrong, doesn't it? Right. So that means that their sins in our life, that person on that piece of paper, it's their sins that you will remember no more. He says, as far as the east is the west, I will cast their sins from me. Well, are we willing to cast those people, the hundred denarii, away from us that far? I would hope so. He says that I will cast them in Micah. He says, I will cast their sins into the sea. We have since called that the sea of forgetfulness. But that's, that's what we call it. That's what it is. It's casting it into the sea in Micah. Are we willing to cast the hundred denarii in the sea, the heavy debt, the heavy things? Are we willing to do that? Well, come on, we should. Because that's where we were, if we're honest. And this is where we are. 
sons and daughters of Almighty God. So that's, we forgive as God forgives. So three closing words and we're done. Number one, confess. Confess the offenses to God. Both, I always say this when I talk about forgiveness. Real and perceived. How many people have heard me say that before? Yeah, yeah. Real and perceived. Why? Because half the time the sins that we think people have against us, like walking funny and making fun of us, no. are perceived. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Real and perceived, we confess them to God. That's the first thing. The second thing we do is we renounce our right to hold them. Yes. <clears throat> because we don't have any rights to hold any sins right. against anyone because that's where we were if we really believe it. If we don't, well, we need to we need to go somewhere and get started from, from square one. Right. Confess, renounce our right to hold on to them. And this is what I do I, when, when I'm struggling with forgiveness. <clears throat> I ask the Lord, Lord, will you give me power? Again, I've said this before, we can't ask the Lord to obey for us. We can't ask him to forgive for us. But I do this. I said, mm-hmm. I say, Lord, please give me the power to forgive as you forgive. Yes, yes, yes. And he does, yes. because he wants me to forgive. Yes. And he gives me the power, wouldn't you know it? The, the craziest, heaviest sins are lifted off my shoulders for other people. And I have freedom in those areas. Right. And I love them, and I look them in the eye, and it's great to look people in the eye yeah. that you otherwise were thinking weird things about. It's a fact, so confess it, renounce That's it, right. pray. Right. Pray and ask that the Lord help you forgive the way he forgives. And then the last word is repeat. And I said this before, <laughs> forgiveness is sometimes a war of attrition. I would challenge any of you, and I've already started this, I would challenge any of you to write 490 on a piece of paper and stick it on your dashboard. Drive to work, and every time somebody annoys you on the road, scratch that off and make 489. <laughs> and say, I forgive First of all, you feel very magnanimous. You can even do the sign of the cross if you want. <laughs> I challenge you. I guarantee you, you won't get through 490. I guarantee you. And he wasn't even talking about 490. He was talking about bunches of bunches. But try it. You'd be amazed at how forgiving you can be. You'd be amazed at how you can release all of these silly things. So repeat, but be ready. Because if it's a deep one, if it's a heavy one, if it's a hard one, it's a war of attrition. And it means you have to keep forgiving them over again. Doesn't mean you're failing. Doesn't mean it didn't take. Doesn't mean it didn't work. It just means that it's a tree you're chopping down, and it takes several swings to get it to fall. All right, so let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. I ask your blessing on it. I pray, Lord God, we take it to heart, and those people you brought to our mind would be washed from our minds, forgiven, and uh, cast into the sea of forgetfulness, Lord. We forgive like you forget. Thank you. We ask for your power and uh, to go before us, Lord. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. Well, that will do it for this week on the Truth for Saints podcast. As always, uh, we would invite you to visit truthforsaints.com, a great resource for researching cults, world religions, worldviews. And uh, we also would invite you to click subscribe. And we'll see you next week on the Truth for Saints podcast. Thank you for listening to this podcast provided by truthforsaints.com.